morning. Someone mentioned to me last week, it's kind of weird. I walk out right when that word ancient of days comes up. <laughs> How sacrilege. Glad you were here. Phaedrus was a Roman writer who wrote uh, at the same time that Jesus Christ lived and walked this earth. And he is reported to have said these very interesting words. Things don't, all, all, things don't always appear. Do I have that up there? There they are. Things are not always what they seem. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few perceives what has been carefully hidden. Things don't always appear as they seem. The story of the little girl who <clears throat> had two apples and her mommy walked into the room and saw her daughter with the two apples and she said, oh, hi honey, would you like to share one of your apples with mommy? And the little girl looked at the two apples and looked at her mom and then she quickly took a bite out of this one and then a bite out of that one. And the mom was kind of trying to control her shock at having raised such a selfish little girl. And, and then the little girl looked at her mom and handed her one of the bitten apples and said, here, Mommy, this is the sweetest one. Oh. See, things aren't always as they seem. Someone once said that um, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. We, we look at life through the lenses of our experiences, of our backgrounds, of the things that have impacted our life. Uh, we see things as we are. You know, the cup is either half full or it's half empty. How have my life experiences, my <clears throat> background, my upbringing, my traumas, how has that shaped my, my, um, my perception of what the world is? My preconceptions can be very, um, well, they can be very uh, damaging. They can be very uh, misconstrued. Uh, I will look at life as how I perceive them based on my background. Well, we'll look at the story today of Daniel, as we get into Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is going to be in some dire circumstances. He's in a really, really difficult situation. But it's his preconceived notions about God that led him to have an uncompromised life. So take your Bibles, turn them to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. His preconception of the world had God written all over it. Now, what kind of a world was it? We saw this last week. The Assyrian power had uh, ruled the day for like three centuries, but they were gone. The Assyrian power was no more. It was now controlled the world by the Babylonian power. Nabopolassar, as we saw last week, had, had risen up and, and run out the Assyrians. They had overpowered the Assyrians. And his son Nebuchadnezzar had led the Babylonian forces at Carchemish in uh, the Battle of Carchemish and defeated the Assyrian forces and the Egyptian forces that had come up to help the Assyrians. In fact, in 605, Nebuchadnezzar takes his forces and chases the Egyptians back down through this little country called Judah. Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel, the, the northern ten tribes of Israel, uh, 
had already been wiped out by the Assyrians some 150 years earlier. The southern two tribes of Israel, that tribe of Benjamin and Judah that made up the kingdom of Judah, uh, they had followed the Lord for a few more years, a few more decades, but now they had turned their heart away from God. And it was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians that God used to come into Judah, besiege Jerusalem, and conquer the people, the Jewish people, the people of Judah. Um, this was forewarned by God. God said, if you're not going to follow me, if you're not going to obey me, judgment's going to come. He told them back, told them that back in Deuteronomy 28 under Moses. If you disobey me, then you can expect this to happen. If you obey me, then you can expect these blessings to come. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet who lived during this whole time of the siege of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah had written this in chapter 20, verse 4, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm going to make you a terror, a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And while your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword of their enemies. And so I will give over all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away as exiles to Babylon and will slay them with the sword. And as we saw last week, the opening verses of our book that we're studying, Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, says, In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, Nebo. That was the God that Nebuchadnezzar was named for, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo. He brought the vessels of the Lord, Jehovah's house, into the treasury of his God. Our God is better. Our God is bigger. Our God conquered your God. Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of the world. And his strategy now to take conquered people, to assimilate them into the Babylonian life, was to focus on taking the, the young, bright, uh, young men of, uh, of a noble class of that conquered people and take them off into exile and, and retrain them, indoctrinate them, brainwash them into Babylonian way of life. So that's what he does. He grabs the, the brightest young men of Jerusalem, men of nobility, and exiles them, forced exile into Babylon. And that's one of the men taken, that was Daniel. Probably no more than 14, 15 years of age. And we know that because we'll see that Daniel lived 70 plus years after this. So he was about, he lived well into his 80s. So he was about 14 or 15. And he and a bunch of young men were taken off into captivity, forced captivity, to be trained by Nebuchadnezzar's henchmen, his regime, so that they eventually would be used uh, as, as, as puppets or, or people in his government, probably like a state department, um, as Nebuchadnezzar would conquer people and he would move those people back to Babylon, then he would have ready-made um, uh, exiles that he had trained to uh, kind of be governors over them. Daniel was one of those young men taken in 605 B.C., back to Babylon. Now, let's pick up the story in verse 3, Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. It says this. I'm reading here from the New American Standard, 
version. It says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, who was the chief of his officials or the chief of the eunuchs, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. Um, If this wasn't written 2,600 years ago, I swear he's talking about young Nebraska farm boys, but um, (laughs) anyway, let's keep reading. And he ordered them to teach these young men the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. And he appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials of the eunuchs assigned or gave them new names. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. You get an idea of what Nebuchadnezzar's uh, plan was. Let's brainwash these kids. Let's bring them up thoroughly Babylonian. Uh, let's, um, let's make them one of us. Let's make them one of us. As a five, according to verse 5, it was a three-year indoctrination plan, and he was looking for young men who, there's four requirements. They had to be uh, culturally, they had to be of noble birth, just not any young man would do. There was a, a, a physical requirement. Physically, they had to be um, without blemish, no defect. They had to be perfect specimens of humanity. Um, there were also um, mental requirements. They had to be sharp-minded, intelligent, uh, full of wisdom, understanding all the, um, the intricacies of life, discerning, quick-witted, quick-minded. They had to be able to be problem solvers. That's the idea of wisdom. They had to be able to assess things quickly and then make cho- uh, proper decisions. He was looking for the sharp minds. And socially, these people had to be poised. They had to be the kind of people who would represent the king well in his court to serve him, um, to serve him well. And so Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to make them thoroughly Babylonian, eviscerate anything from their past and make them thoroughly Babylonian indoctrinate them in Babylonian ways. And how did he do it? Well, it said they're going to teach them these three years the language, the literature of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians. Uh, Start with the language. Ancient Babylonians spoke a a language, and their written form was what was called cuneiform. It would be little wedge-shaped letters that were imprinted with a stylus into, into a, a soft clay tablets. This is an example. This is what's called the Nabonidus cylinder. You see the wedge shape. Those are the Babylonian words. This thing, by the way, was found in the mid-1800s uh, in modern-day Iraq. Uh, and it comes from the very same time period that Daniel would have lived. Um, it's called the Nabonidus cylinder because Nabonidus was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who was a co-ruler, co-regent at that time. 
And um, it's, I don't know, it's very possible Daniel might have seen this thing. But that's cuneiform. Here's another example of it. It's um, a tablet, a, a clay tablet that, um, again, see the, the cuneiform, the wedge-shaped things? Apparently, this, this is a, a boat rental receipt <laughs> that they dug up. There's so many thousands of pieces of things that have been dug up in ancient Babylon or from ancient Babylon. British Museum has a whole bunch of them and different, different other museums. Thousands, tens of thousands of things. So our understanding of ancient Babylonian culture and the culture of this day that Daniel was living in is, is pretty right on, is pretty intact. So they had to learn the language. Um, and then the literature, the thinking, the worldview of the ancient Babylonian world. Um, and it was, it was entirely different from the monotheistic worldview that these boys had come from in, uh, in Judah and their homes in Jerusalem. Uh, entirely different. Now, the Babylonians were well-versed, well, were steeped in uh, uh, mathematics and science. These were not dumb people, so they're being educated in those things of science, mathematics, agronomy, various things. But really, what the more scary thing about the Babylonian culture was its, um, uh, what's its, it, it was its, its, its embracing of, uh, of, of the dark side, of the demonic realm, of the satanic realm. Babylonians uh, wrote a lot about, about uh, magic and divination, and uh, they had um, volumes of books on incantations and uh, just, just the dark side, just a, a demonic. Thoroughly through and through, the Babylonian society was satanic. Um, and here are these young Jewish boys taken from their homes, from their monotheistic worship of Jehovah God, and are all being brainwashed and indoctrinated for these three years into this type of culture. Someone in the first service says, well, you know what we call that today? college. <laughs> um, this polytheistic, pantheistic world. Well, not only did Nebuchadnezzar want to change these young Jewish boys' way of thinking, he wanted to change their whole way of life. And it says that he appointed, verse 5, a daily ration. He, he, he just didn't want to control the way they thought. He wanted to control what they ate. And so there was these, uh, this choice food and, and, and the choice wine that he made these young men eat and drink. Changed their way of thinking, changed their way of living. And thirdly, he was going to change their way of worship. That was crucial. Change their way of worship. And we see that by, again, eviscerating anything of, of Jewishness, like their names, and giving them Babylonian names. So Daniel, for instance, his name is God is my judge, and his name was changed to Belteshazzar. Bel, that's the chief god of Babylonian pantheon. Marduk was his other name. Bel protects my life. Hananiah, his name meant Jehovah is gracious. To Shadrach, command of Aku. Aku was the moon god. And the best that interpreters can understand is that's what his name meant. Or Mishael, who is like God? His name was changed to Meshach. Who is what Aku is or 
who is like a coup, the moon god. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. All those A-H endings, ah, like are, come from the, the personal name, God, Yahweh or Jehovah. Azariah, Yahweh has helped me to Abednego, the servant of Nebo. No, 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 you're not worshiping Jehovah God. Get him out of your mind because he's no more. We've conquered him. He's nothing. You're a conquered Jewish people. You're now going to worship Bel, Marduk, Aku, Nebo. Oh, that was a great plan of Nebuchadnezzar's. Take the young, the brightest, bring them back into exile into Babylon, work their minds, brainwash them, indoctrinate them, and everything Babylonian so that they will grow up and be true, blue, loyal Babylonians and serve the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And every day, these four boys were being forced to face three things that were steeped in paganism. The pagan learning, their pagan names, the pagan food that they were forced to eat, everything pagan indoctrinated in their lives. Can you imagine what these young Jewish boys were up against? Torn from their homes, everything that they held dear, everything that they knew that was familiar to them, they're stripped from that. Forced now to become totally Babylonian. Nothing to do with Judaism. Wipe it out of your mind. Reject the God of Judaism, Jehovah, and embrace the pantheon of Babylonianism, the demonism, the satanic nature, the darkness of Babylon. Come to the dark side, was the mentality of Nebuchadnezzar and his henchmen. Well, would the Jewish boys acquiesce to this? Would they, would they cave in? Would they, would they embrace the mentality? Um, you know, if we're going to get along, well, let's just go along. Well, Daniel did not. Look at verse 8, what verse 8 says. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel made up his mind. King James says he purposed in his heart. He purposed in his heart. He was resolved, I'm not going to do this. Now notice what he was not going to do. He purposed in his heart. Now he's being subjected to Babylonian literature. Well, okay, I'll read it. I'll study it. Got my name changed? All right. Call me Belteshazzar if you want. But where Daniel drew the line and would not cross it was when the Mosaic law said, thou shalt not eat this unclean food. There's a whole list of laws and regulations in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law. And Daniel knew that. He'd been raised to understand the Mosaic law. And he said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to violate the law. This is, this, is, this is unclean food that has been offered probably then to pagan deities. And if I were to eat it, number one, I'd be violating the Mosaic law. And number two, I'd be venerating demons, false gods. And Dan, Daniel was not going to cross the line that God had put there. Now, he's not going to draw a line where God didn't, but he's not going to cross the line. He purposed in his heart, in this uncompromising 
determined way, I'm not going to cross that line. I'm going to obey the Mosaic Law. Now, think about it. There was every reason to have compromised. Every, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar made the law. The king said, eat that food. You're going to violate what the king said? Um, it was the law of the land for these boys. Um, and after all, it was good food. I mean, it was the choice food. So, all right, you know, I can hedge here a little bit. I mean, it's good food. Every, every reason in the world that they could have come up with to compromise. Um, you know, we, we, mom and dad is not here. They're not looking over our shoulder. You know, we're exiles. We're a captured, conquered people. Which, by the way, where is this God, Jehovah, anyway? Why should I follow his laws? Because, I mean, we're conquered. Nebo conquered Jehovah. I mean, they could have come up with every excuse in the book to go ahead and compromise. Daniel purposed in his heart. He chose, he made a decision, an act of the will. He made up his mind, he made a resolve that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. By the way, just indulge me for a moment or two here. I, I think it's really fascinating. In the, in the Hebrew text of, of the, in, in this passage, verse 7, verse 7 it, it, it says this, uh, then the commander of the, of the eunuchs assigned or gave new names. That word in the Hebrew text is a Hebrew word, viasem, which means to place upon or to set upon. And it's the very first word that shows up in verse 7. So Hebrews were right, reading this, they would see viasem, that, that was set upon them, these Jewish boys, by the official. It's a word, the root word sem simply means to, to place. To, I say you, you, you put a, a cup on the table, you place it on the table. That was the word used. I'm going to set this upon you. But in a culture where you set upon someone a new name, now you're saying I'm controlling you. I rename you, you're mine. I'm in charge of you. I'm placing upon you a new name. Well, guess what? The very opening ver word in verse 8 is the same word. Daniel made up his mind. He purposed in his heart. So the very first word in verse 7, viasem, to be placed upon. Very first word in verse 8, viasem. And we miss that in our English translations. It's the same word. So what's the meaning? What's the purpose behind that? I think it's this. And everybody who... In, who would have originally read this, they would have seen that first word in verse 7 and that first word in verse 8, and they would have understood what, was, what God was doing here as he's writing this. The Babylonian officials were saying, we're going to place upon you a new name. We're going to change everything external. We've taken you from home. We're going to force you to eat our food. We're going to force you to, we're going to change your name. We're going to set upon you a new name. And Daniel said, Oh, you can do all you want. You can place upon me all you want, but you can't touch my heart. And he set upon his own heart that he's not going to defile God. I love how that is laid out in the Scriptures. That was free, so just take that for what it's worth. Daniel was going to do what was right.
Look at uh, verse 9. Well, the last part of verse 8, it says, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials. And verse 9, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of this commander, this chief eunuch. But the commander said to Daniel in verse 10, I'm afraid of my lord the king. He's appointed your food and your drink, for you should, uh, for why uh, should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? And then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. I mean, this guy's no dummy. I mean, he was born last week. I mean, this guy understood the king has made these commands. I hear what you're saying, and God gave him favor. I like you, Daniel. I mean, there's something about you. I, I, you know, I really, you know you're, you're a good kid. You're going to go someplace, but not at my expense. I'm not going to lose my head over this. So I love what Daniel did. Now remember, this is like a 14, 15-year-old kid. Verse 11, Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. So what does Daniel do? Okay, Ashpenaz says, I'm not going to do this. So he goes to the next guy in charge who was over these guys. And it says in verse 12, Daniel tell, asks, or tells him, please test your servants for 10 days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And then deal with your servants according to what you see. Let, let, let's, just, let's just try this for 10 days. And let everybody else eat the, the king's choice food. But look, just give us, and the word literally is things that are grown from seeds. So it's more than just vegetables. Things that are grown from seeds, so grains, and, and, and that for just for 10 days. And let's see what happens. Very reasonable. I'm not asking this for three years. I'm asking it for 10 days. Well, good night. What's going to get accomplished in 10 days? Well, so he listened, verse 14, to them in this matter. He tested them for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days... Their appearance seemed better. They were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Are you kidding me? Now, folks, this is a miracle. <laughs> this is a miracle. Um, I'll guarantee you, you eat vegetables for 10 days, you're not going to come out fatter. You know, I, I, my, my surgery, the end of November, and I read, you know, what do you do before surgery? You, you lose some weight. So for two months, I started to eat more healthily in vegetables and things like that. And over two weeks or two months, I lost 20 pounds. I didn't get fatter. These guys got fatter in 10 days eating vegetables. And uh, by the way, if you're a vegetarian here, a vegan, go for it. I mean, it's healthy, but give me a beef steak here from someplace <laughs> once in a while. But God was working. This is miraculous. God was doing this. And verse 16 says, so the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine that they were to drink. And he kept giving him these vegetables, these things that grow from seeds. And as for the four youths, so what was the result of it all? God gave them knowledge and intelligence and every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams, as we'll see as we get in, in the weeks to come. Verse 18, so after the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, that three-year indoctrination brainwashing period the commander of the officials the chief eunuch presented them before nebuchadnezzar here's the test they're going to come before the king 
And the king talked with them, met with them, and out of all of them, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they enter the king's personal service. And verse 20 says, As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And verse 21 says, And Daniel continued until the first year, the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. An uncompromising life. What a great introduction. This chapter 1 is written as an introduction to the heart of Daniel and an introduction to the rest of the book, as we'll see in the weeks to come. But what stands out to me in this chapter is this uncompromising heart of Daniel. He determined, he purposed in his heart, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to do what God says. He lived an uncompromised life. You know, down through the centuries of Christianity, 2,000 years of church history, hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus have, have been forced to have to make this decision. Do I compromise my belief in Jesus and live? Uh, or do I live an uncompromising life and possibly die, losing my life? I mean, that's happening tens of thousands of Christians to this day in this world are being forced to make that decision. Now, fortunately, here in America, we haven't had to make that decision in terms of a life or death situation. It might be coming. It might be coming. We're increasingly living in a dark age, and the hatred against God is becoming more and more palpable. But we're not there yet, except there's probably not a week that goes by or a month goes by that in some form or fashion we may be tempted to compromise. The, the Christian who's a, a business person working for a company that has a kind of a track record of doing some unethical things and now he's being forced to decide, do I go ahead and play the game at the company, the corporate unethical business, or do I, do I do what is right and possibly lose my job? The Christian young person who wants to keep their association of friends but are being tempted in, to compromise their morality, to do things that they know is, would be displeasing to the Lord. Do I keep my friends? Because they're very important to young people. Living an uncompromising life, an entire church congregation <laughs> being forced to decide, do I go with our, continue with our denomination that has moved away from its biblical moorings to unbiblical teaching? But if we go away and separate, then we're going to lose our building, and we've, we've given thousands of dollars, each of us, from our own pocket to build this building. Every day, we are going to be challenged and forced to consider, what, what are we going to do? Are we going to live a compromised life or an uncompromised life? How do we do it? How, how did Daniel do it? And let me just suggest as we wrap up, three things that I think um, Daniel and his friends had embraced that led them to live an uncompromised life. Here's the first one. 
to live an uncompromised life, we need to look to the greater glory. Look to the greater glory. Am I going to serve the king, Nebuchadnezzar? Or am I going to serve the king of kings, Jehovah God? What's the greater glory? Not, not just the immediate um, perks that might come with, uh, you know, living in the immediate, the, 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 the dot mentality of my life, but what's the greater glory? And there were perks with Nebuchadnezzar, no question. Good choice food, advancement in his kingdom, uh, freedom to serve and live, a lot of perks to go along and get along with Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel looked to the greater glory. There was something beyond. Daniel would tell us today, don't be enthralled with what the world has to offer. Oh, it's enticing. The immediate perks look really good. But if it violates the heart of God, don't do it. Look to the greater glory. Jesus, when he was tempted, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4, one of the things that the God of this world, Satan, tempted Jesus with, he took him up on top and said, look at all the kingdoms of the world. They are mine to give to you, and I'll give them all to you. And, and the father of lies was not lying there. The God of this world, every kingdom of the world was held in his hand, and he said, I'll give it all to you. You bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, get behind me. You see, there was a greater glory. Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. Look to the greater glory. There's something beyond. There's something better. What the world has to offer, it's a dead-end street, and it's going to go nowhere. Second of all, how do you live an uncompromised life? You resist conformity to the world by guarding your heart. You guard your heart by the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11 said, How does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word. Daniel would have known that. The Psalms. Um, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart out of which flows the wellspring of life. Guard your heart, the Word of God. And here's Daniel. All the props of his life, of his past life, are, are gone. He's in the midst of the darkness and the demonism of Babylonian life. But he did the right thing. He purposed in his heart. Why? Because he knew that the right thing to do. He wasn't in a fog of how to live. He was following the Scriptures. He was been given guidance from God's Word. He said, okay, that's, that's what God wants. That's what I'm going to do. He wasn't mixed up because he had purposed in his heart and he had focused on the Word of God. God's Word was what was important. And let's not forget, again, he's surrounded and steeped in paganism, pagan learning, a pagan name, pagan food, the attractions of all that around him. But he resisted that conformity because he knew the Word of God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, but he, in verse 2 he says, don't be conformed 
to the world's way of thinking. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the, what? The renewing of your minds that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good, perfect, acceptable will of God. And how are our minds renewed? Well, it's not by sitting and breathing in the air of our current culture over and over again. How shall a person keep their way pure before God? By keeping according to his word. The renewing of the mind comes, according to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that will be adequate and equipped for every good deed. And, and, and that's where we get ourselves in trouble, folks, is when we don't know the heart of God, we don't know the God of the Word, and the, but the Word of God, and so we're just susceptible to the deceptions and the lies that are being spread by the God of this world, the father of lies. Not so Daniel. This is what God's Word says, okay, I'm going to purpose in my heart to do it. I'm going to defile myself. He knew the Word of God. How do you have an uncompromising life? You look to the greater glory. You resist conformity by guarding your heart with the Word of God. But it's not only just knowing the Word of God, it's knowing the God of the Word. So here's the third thing. How do, how do we live an uncompromising life? We entrust our souls to the sovereign God who graciously provides. Daniel knew his God. There he is, living in Nebuchadnezzar's backyard with Nebo and Marduk and Bel and all the demonism of that environment, of that dark time. He was surrounded by it, but he knew his God, and he entrusted his heart. He knew what God's Word says, but he knew God was sovereign. The boys from Judah, they ended up being ten times better than anything that the Babylonians could put out. That's what I love about this chapter, chapter 1. All through it, you can't read chapter 1 without coming away and realizing Jehovah God wins. That's the theme of the book of, of Daniel. There's a sovereign God in heaven who reigns supreme. Things aren't always as they seem. Nebuchadnezzar, he was in charge. He conquered the Jewish people. He's now telling them what to think, what to say, how to worship, what to eat. Ah, but things aren't always as they seem. And in chapter 1 of Daniel, we're introduced to the sovereign Jehovah God who beats Nebuchadnezzar hands down. And he graciously does it. Verse 9 says, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion. Verse 17 says, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch. And the end result was Nebuchadnezzar, Jehovah God. Ten times better? Eh. Are you going to go with a winner? Or are you going to go with a loser? And folks, everything this world has to offer is going to be a dead-end street. It's a losing proposition. But we, when we see the greater glory, when we understand and the heart of God and His Word, and we don't conform to the world's way of thinking, 
We guard our heart with knowing His Word, and we entrust ourselves to the sovereign Lord. You can't help but come on and be a winner. Now, we might die in the process, but that's not losing. In fact, isn't it the amazing thing about the Christian life? It's this paradox. If you want to live, you have to die, right? If you're going to gain, you got to lose. <laughs> that's, that's the way of Jesus. But what do we gain? What did Daniel gain? Why was it, I mean, why not just play the game of Nebuchadnezzar? Because there was so much more to gain. Jesus came and he said, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. I'm, I'm going to give you life, not, not just when you die, eternal life. Praise God we get that. But he said, you can have eternal life now. Life, real living. God is the one who created it all. He created us. And he says, I know how it works. And I'll give you joy inexpressible, full of glory. Because at my right hand, he says in Psalm 16, and Daniel would have read that, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. In my presence, there's nothing but joy. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, you know what the fruit of the Spirit is? You know what life is defined as? Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, we're being duped every day, young person, old person, we're being duped every day to think real life is found by a great portfolio that is for retirement, or to do this, or to acquire that, or to have that education, or to do this, or do that, or have this, or have that. The one with the most toys is going to win. Are you kidding me? If you buy that, Nebo wins, and you lose. But God has a whole different way of defining life, and Daniel embraced it. And he lived an uncompromising life. In verse 21, the last verse of chapter 1, it says this, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. I love that. And we'll see this throughout the book. Daniel continued. This young 14, 15-year-old kid who made a stand and uncompromised life in the dark, deep recess of Babylon, he continued for the next 70, 75 years until Cyrus came in 539. You see, in the final analysis, when it's all said and done, Daniel was not held captive by Babylon. Babylon was held captive by Daniel, or the God of Daniel. How about us this morning? We leave here, we go out in a very hostile world, increasingly so. And it's very subtle to lure us away, to take us captive, to exile us into a realm of darkness. And we can leave here as victims or as victors and choose to live an uncompromised life through the power of Jehovah God, the God who always wins. Let's pray. And so, Father, give us the grace 
the strength, the power, the wisdom to live that uncompromised life, to dare to be a Daniel. In the midst of the dire circumstances of a world that has fallen apart, going to hell in a handbasket as fast as we can imagine. Father, that, um, that you would work that truth into our lives and give us such a perspective of your character and, and who you are, the sovereign Lord of all, the glory of, of serving you, the joy of what you have to offer us, what it really means to have abundant life that only you can give us. Help us, Father, not to be satisfied with the, as C.S. Lewis called, the, the, the mud pies in the backyard when, when you've offered us a holiday at sea, a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Help us to examine our, our hearts, Father. And may we determine, may we purpose in that heart to serve you because there is nothing better. In Jesus' name, amen.